information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to another episode of Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast presented to you by Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I'm your host today, Puneet Daliwal, and I'm joined today by Dr. Catherine Cho to discuss a rare neurological disorder called multi-department syndrome. Our guest is very distinguished. She's Director of Neurotology, Department of Neurology, NYU Langone Health in New York City. She's an exemplary physician and researcher in the field of vestibular science and has published enormous articles in the field. She's a leading author for um, the consensus statement which came out from Baroness Society on multi-department. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Cho. It's such Um, a pleasure. I would like to make one minor correction that Yudhi Cha is the lead author on that uh, uh, consensus statement. I was on the subcommittee for that. Um, could we say um, part of the author? Yeah, I was like on the uh, committee for um, the consensus, the Baronet uh, consensus uh, committee. One of to... the authors, would that yep. be a better author? Yes, okay. yeah, that would so be I'm better. Gonna, cause... So I'm gonna read a part of the whole thing. <laughs> okay, because she's like, she deserves that credit. It was quite okay. a feat. I will say, one of the authors of mm-hmm. the consensus statement. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll give it a little pause. Okay. Hello and welcome to another episode of Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast presented to you by Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I'm your host, Puneet Daliwal, and I'm joined today by Dr. Catherine Cho to discuss a rare neurological disorder called multi-debarkment syndrome. Our guest today is highly distinguished. She's Director of Neurotology, Department of Neurology, NYU Langone Health in New York City. She's an exemplary physician and researcher in the field of vestibular science and has published enormous articles in the field. She's also one of the authors for the consensus statement, which was published by Baroness Society recently on multi-department. Thank you so much for joining for the show today, Dr. Cho. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners, what is multi-debarkment syndrome? So it was, um, it's considered rare, but I think it's more common than not. I think it's not, uh, I think it's missed. Uh, it's a, it's a vertigo, which is an illusion of movement, uh, mostly of rocking, which is a pitching motion. We define as pitching, swaying, which is kind of in the role plane side to side, or bobbing, which is up and down, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, and it occurs after exposure to some travel on a boat or plane, usually, where there is some role component on that uh, trip. And patients feel fine on the boat or a cruise or the car or plane. And then when they get out, they still feel like land sickness. So many of us feel this, uh, and it's completely normal when you come off a ferry, you kind of still feel like that you're on a dock but it is abnormal when it lasts over 48 hours. And that's kind of an arbitrary cutoff. Generally lasts like a few minutes or maybe a few hours. And it is unique in the sense that when you're re-exposed to the trigger, so if you go back on the car, on the boat or in a car or in passive motion, then the symptoms disappear. And then when you stop, they usually rebound. So uh, that is very unique to these uh, motion-triggered, motion-modulated vertigos. 
So when the rebound, uh, is it about the same intensity? Do you hear back from patients or does the symptoms, um, do they get more intense after the second passive motion? It depends on the patients. Usually it's about the same. If it's a car ride, they'll just feel it in a traffic light. But sometimes patients, when they um, improve, they'll some of them spontaneously uh, resolve. Then re-exposure, sometimes there's a uh, prolongation with each episode. Uh, so that, in that sense, it can get worse. Now, um, is there a gender preponderance for um, this syndrome? Yeah, I think mostly women uh, of uh, in their fifth decade, perimenopausal. Um, we don't know why there are some theories on that. Uh, some of it, and dizziness in general affects women more than men. Um, this is a blanket statement, not in individual conditions, but generally women are more affected than men. Um, there might be a hormonal basis for it, but I don't think that we understand it very well. Now, you did mention it's not that rare a condition, um, but when we read articles or even in vestibular clinics, you know, mm -hmm. we don't really see them that much. Do you think it is an under-recognized condition? I think it's under-recognized. It's becoming more recognized as more papers are being published. So if you look at the publication data, there is a huge spike in the last 10 years. Uh, I think patients are more savvy. Most of them come self-referred. Uh, it's like, do I have this? Uh, social media has helped a lot when you have these vestibular support groups. Um, some people mention it and you know, it, there's, there's potential treatment, which is why they come to my clinic at least. Well, that's really good to know. Um, the other thing, um, it is also said that the onset of uh, Maldi debarkman syndrome is uniquely motion triggered, or is there another subtype as well, which some people call as spontaneous or non-motion triggered? Could you discuss that a little bit with us? Yes, yeah, so during the uh, classification um, process, a lot of us went back and forth. Some of us called it spontaneous. I still refer to it as spontaneous MDDS so that patients don't get confused. But technically using the, um, the terms that are established by the Baronet Society so that it can, um, so we can do better research is uh, we call it uh, motion triggered, motion modulated, um, non-spinning vertigo or non-motion triggered motion mus. So it's a lot of, it's a mouthful but we call it spontaneous MDDS and they uh, behave very similarly in the sense that they have this slow um, oscillating vertigo or pulling and alleviated with passive motion. Both of them would be both of them, both of them. And that's what makes them so different from the other vestibular conditions. Now, um, is there a preponderance between both of them also? Like both of them are more predominant with females. Mm -hmm. Does one tend to last longer than the other? Or I don't think we know the answer. I think that there, I don't think there's much data on either of them, but we, there is suggestion that uh, spontaneous can be more refractory to treatment um, and more associated with migraine. And so it may change the treatment strategy. Now, you did mention about the Baroness Society criteria that just came out, um, mm -hmm. the consensus statement. Would you discuss that a little bit more in detail with our listeners? So the Baroness Society has um, created uh, criteria for several different conditions because 
when you make a diagnosis of vertigo, it's often very uh, dirty. It's not precise. It's not clean. And then when you recruit patients for studies, it's uh, some people don't are not the same as the other. So this was more so that we can learn more about the conditions that we're defining. So there are a few categories. I may have to bring this up a little bit, but um, one is um, the criteria is non-spinning vertigo. So rocking, bobbing, swaying is what I mentioned, but sometimes gravity pulling. Um, it occurs within 48 hours of the trip. So, the, so two days later, do I see patients that develop three days later? Yes, I still will call them MDDS, but for research purposes, sometimes you may want to be a little more strict. The other thing is that upon re-exposure to the stimulus, the, um, the vertigo goes away and then we'll come back when the, um, when the stimulus is removed. Um, and there's different types. So we call um, uh, MDDS that's less than a month that, and they're still having symptoms in evolution. So we don't know how long it's going to last. Anything over 48 hours and less than one month um, is considered transient MDDS. And then you have um, persistent MDDS, which is longer than a month. I also wanted to ask you, do you tend to see that persistent group lasting even for years um, that might be coming to your clinic where or it's usually like one month, maybe a few months, and then patients resolve or? I think that I don't see the ones that resolve, but I know they exist. Um, because when I get patients, most of them are persistent because usually they go see other specialists and they, they look around. And many of them have a history of shorter versions of MDDS they never saw anybody for. Uh, so I think that it can vary. Uh, the longest uh, duration, I think one of my patients has had it for 50 years. And so she's not doing well, uh, unfortunately, but she's kind of, we're trying a lot of different medications, but she's kind of coming to terms that this might not go away. Uh, so then that's an unfortunate case. Yeah. Now, uh, are there any, any particular forms of travel that provoke MDDS more than others? During my readings and like when we hear from patients, it's usually a cruise or a ferry ride. Mm -hmm. um, do you see that in land travel as well or, or water travel tends to be the most uh, persistent ones? Land travel, uh, especially like turbulent um, or bumpy rides, um, things where there's a lot of roll component and that's actually theoretical. So I don't want anybody to kind of latch onto that. Um, cruises are particular because they have this kind of slow frequency that might kind of prime the brain to develop the vertigo. Um, and, you know, trains, planes. Uh, there are some reports of um, like VR doing it, but those have been proven not to be true MDDS. I was having this conversation. There's a new exploration into space. Right. Um, <laughs> have, have this been noticed in astronauts or like people who have been traveling to space and like now there's all this whole tourism about space travel. Do you think that could be a possibility in future for them? It definitely could be a possibility. Um, I think any kind of travel can be. I, I mean, we don't have enough numbers. The N is too low to study astronauts. As far as I know, none of them have MDDS. Um, they tend to have a very strong constitution when it comes to emotion sensitivity. So now when you get the lay public involved, we don't know. 
Uh, good to know. Uh, at <laughs> least it'll keep the people interested in still going to space. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, what is the suspected pathophysiology? Do we have at least some base or working um, ideology about like what probably is happening in the brain or we know absolutely nothing about it? We have some theories. I think a lot of the work came from uh, Yunhee Cha's work on the on, uh, with transmagnetic stimulation uh, of hypermetabolism in the entorhinal cortex, and there's other areas as well. But the uh, entorhinal cortex has a lot of space neurons, like the, that help you locate yourself in space, and they can get primed. Uh, my group uh, with Mingja Dai, who passed away, and uh, Bernie Cohen, who also passed away, and uh, Sergei Yakushin, who's still working, trying to get stuff done. Uh, they, uh, we uh, propose a brainstem mechanism where the vestibular nuclei are kind of primed in some way, uh, going through the olivarian nucleus and up to the nodulus. And somehow that entrainment of role can, uh, after the stopping the stimulus, there are some animal studies showing that some of these neurons in the, uh, the Purkinje cells and the nodules are still primed about even five minutes later. Now, um, entrainment and oscillators mm -hmm. have been discussed. Could you just give us a very brief, um, simple terminology? Like what do these terms mean and how do they really impact um, people with MDDS or like how is the brain involved? So we don't know enough, um, but when we must talk about entrainment, it's like when we give a stimulus and then the neurons respond to that stimulus. And then when you get that stimulus, remove it, the neurons are still kind of firing in that as if the stimulus still exists. And most of the times it's transient, um, but sometimes you get locked in. Okay. And we don't know what that process is of locking in which also that process may be responsible for the alleviation of symptoms when you're exposed to that same stimulus. Now, um, are there any clinical tests uh, or diagnostic tools that are used for the diagnosis? So not specific to MDDS. Uh, the Mingja and our group uh, wrote some clinical findings. So it was so that MDDS has no clinical findings. Or well, there's subtle ones that may not be specific to MDDS. So uh, much was made about the um, cross-coupled nystagmus when you tilt the head left and right. Um, it turns out that when we're actually looking for it, we don't see it that often. And you can also see it in people with vestibular migraine or chronic vestibular disorders. So that's not too specific. And it's not a significant nystagmus. You know, it was under two degrees per second. But what was important about that is that gave, uh, we call them dye, uh, the idea to try the optokinetic uh, uh, stimulation to try to reverse it. So even though it's not a persistent finding, it was kind of the catalyst of developing this protocol that, um, that the group at Mount Sinai did. Um, so that, um, so when we uh, do the stimulus, uh, it kind of reverses the eye findings and can kind of, kind of um, giving a reverse stimulus to try to de-entrain the, the neurons. Another finding is that when you stand, most of us sway. And I think that patients with any chronic vestibular disorder, they're kind of heightened. So they kind of overcorrect and they, they, they move a little bit more. We will still call that no Romberg. But when we look at the posturography um, traces before and after treatment or during symptoms and after symptoms, they are much more steady. Their, their center uh, body uh, position is uh, much tighter. 
Okay. And then there's the Fukuda or Unterberger test or Stepage test and patients will turn in one direction or another. And that can be normal. I mean, we, if you get any medical student, one of them is gonna turn and they'll have a symptom. So we don't like to use it as a diagnostic tool, but we do like to use it to kind of help us determine which direction the optokinetic stimulus is used in that study that I mentioned from 2014. So those are the main things. So they're again, not specific to MDDS, but there are findings there. But otherwise the neurologic exam should be very normal. If you find something, it's not related to the MDDS, it's in addition. And how about imaging? Um, if there's an MRI or CT scan done, it, it comes out to be normal as well for this population? Yes, and if, again, if you find something, it's not related to the MDDS. How about any questionnaires? There have been some mentions of um, some questionnaires that were used by Gordon et al. and Hain et al. Mm -hmm. um, are you using those questionnaires in your clinic or do you suggest? No, <laughs> I don't use them because they don't really uh, capture the specifics of features of MDDS. It's a good global scale, but uh, we just use kind of a 10, 11 point Likert scale. Okay. It's dirty. It's not as clean, but sometimes it's like, uh, you know, fix the know, symptoms out. Well, we have, we're, we're, I'm fortunate to have a group here that does the DHR in every single patient. So if I needed them, I would have them. So I don't really, I personally don't use the skills. I think people with more, um, a robust academic program would, um, they get, they get on everybody because they need outcome measures. Now do, are we doing in future studies, yes, we're collecting all that data because it's kind of relatable to our current, uh, to vestibular disorders. So for a clinician who is probably going to see this patient, could you just briefly iterate um, like three or four tests other than neurological tests that you would like to see other than just symptom assessment for this group of patients um, that you really want to make sure that we get it done like we did Romberg's, um, mm -hmm. maybe one basic DHI um, and balance exam. Postography, is that a part of your assessment? No, too? it really isn't. It's just like clinical. It really, I mean, bedside. Um, if uh, for studies, yeah, we want to get all those measurements, but as, as practicing in, in, in the clinic, I, I don't think that those are necessary. You just want a normal neuro exam. You do want to exclude certain things. So I've been fooled before where it was actually BPPV. It was because if the stimulus from the crystal is low enough, you don't know whether you're translating or rotating. So that could be it. So always make sure that you rule out other things that could be treated. And that's one of them. Um, so while we are on the exclusions, what are the differential diagnoses do come up in your mind while you do um, get to see a patient with MDDS? So we're talking about a chronic patient. Usually it's different from in the emergency room. They don't usually go to the emergency room for this. Um, but the three, a couple main ones is uh, 3PD, which is persistent postural perceptual dizziness. Uh, a migraine equivalent, a chronic migraine associate. It's not really vestibular migraine because you want something more episodic, but sometimes they can present with these kind of chronic uh, dizziness. Um, just maladapted state from a vestibulitis is taking prolonged time to uh, improve. Uh, so those are the main ones. Um, and I would say that with the difference between MDDS and all of those is they improve with a re-exposure to motion. Some other features are that they have it while they're lying down or if it's even worse when it's lying down. 
and that is not 3PD, but that's MDDS. Do, the criteria says that it should be present in all positions, but I do find some patients as they improve, they no longer feel it while seated or they don't like, they only feel it when they're standing. So it may be a form frust, but technically does not meet the criteria for MDDS. So from that, I'm also intrigued. Um, if any peripheral vestibular dysfunction is also associated in this group of patients, or even the VNG exam, or any vestibular lab testing that might happen, um, that's also normal along with usually normal. We do have a theory that the time constant of the step rotation. So what we do is a rotary chair. Not every institution has it, but when you spin someone in the dark for a constant, a constant velocity, they initially feel spinning and then you fatigue and you don't feel like you're moving at all. And then when you stop the chair, you feel like you're spinning the other direction and that fatigues as well. Again, you can't, you shouldn't be able to see anything because your eyes would kind of uh, guide you otherwise. And with MDDS, we think that that might be prolonged or if we do therapy to try to shorten that, meaning by habituation and things that, that should correct it. Again, we're not finding it consistently in everybody, but we, they are kind of on the longer end of normal. Now, in, in general, with vestibular dysfunction, we do find people experiencing anxiety and depression, and there have been actual changes in the brain that anxiety is heightened in this group of population, not necessarily secondary to a vestibular dis disorder. Um, so my, my question to you is this, that with MDDS, is a, is a psychological change secondary to MDDS? Or is there another theory that maybe a pre-existing psychological condition causes MDS and it's already present and perhaps leads to more persistent um, symptoms of this rockiness? Uh, that is a tough question to answer. Uh, my, I, my feeling is that the emotion triggered is there's no predisposition, but definitely you become anxious. And because if you don't know where you are in space, it's really tiring. Just imagine if you had to constantly remember to breathe, otherwise you would stop breathing. Breathing would become very laborious. Like if you had to consciously do it all the time. So that's like consciously trying to keep your balance or orientation in space. Um, taking over for a very old network that just does it automatically. Um, so, uh, I, so unlike 3PD, where there is kind of a neurotic personality subtype or anxiety can predispose, it may not be so for motion-triggered MDDS. However, there are some data for the spontaneous type that a stressful event or um, may do it. So even so physically stressful or emotionally stressful event could trigger oscillating vertigo out of the blue. I have, um, in my practice, um, I had some of these patients who gave birth mm -hmm. and they would come back to me like, you know what, when I gave birth, it was okay. But probably a couple of weeks later, I started developing this rocking motion. Back then, I did not really understand a thing about it. And I probably treated them with balance, habituation exercises. Um, and I was reading that sometimes even such triggers, this, this emotional stress and physical stress, like you described, mm -hmm. can lead to a spontaneous MDDS. Has anyone, um, have you experienced any of these um, cases where 
people may be coming to you post childbirth or post menopausal, um, severe stress in life, and they have developed MDDS. I have a few cases of that. And um, generally they have like their migraine also changes. Like then they're like dizzy with their migraine for some reason. And, it, and they may not have migraines for a couple decades. And then it shows up around menopause or perimenopause. And um, it's, it's quite common that there must be some underlying uh, hormonal uh, role. Uh, we just have, hormones are complex and it's, we haven't figured it out yet. We don't even know, we can't even help a patient to say, well, birth control will help. You know, my answer is that it can help, it can make it worse or not do anything, which is not very helpful to the patient, but sometimes they'll try anything. Now, if they have exacerbations of their symptoms during their period, which some people do, then it might be worthwhile putting something that's more continuous. And, but I, you know, we usually communicate with the uh, gynecologist and, and that's, and they, they put them on something that, that will lessen the frequency of the period. So that's also an option. So it looks like it's a multidisciplinary approach for treatment for this population. What are the treatment options for them? It, it seems a very disabling condition. Mm -hmm. And um, like you mentioned, there's a patient that you saw lasted for 50 years, creates anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Do we foresee or do we have any treatment options for this, this patient population? So that one is a very unusual case. Um, and generally, you know, it can go away. The more you think about it, the more stress you get, the more symptoms you get. Um, so we do try to incorporate vestibular psychology here, uh, which they kind of focus on CBT and kind of like, you know, when you feel dizzy, try not to think about it, which sounds like silly advice, but it does work. Um, as far as uh, standard medications uh, or standard treatment, we do try vestibular therapy, but for some reason it doesn't work as well in MDDS. So that's why you're probably not getting them because uh, at least people that make the diagnosis don't bother. I always try, you know, you know, just try, let's make sure that we, you know, I don't have the hubris to say it's not going to work in you. And, and so we always try it. The last thing we do is there are some data that SNRIs and SSRIs might be helpful. Okay. And if they have a migraine component, especially with the spontaneous onset uh, cases, then anti-migraine strategies might work. But there are some studies saying that there, um, there is possibly more efficacy with SNRIs or SSRIs. But again, it's not for everybody. Some people cannot tolerate those drugs. And I've had some patients that will tolerate terrible side effects like insomnia and things like that because they read on the internet, this is what I'm supposed to take. Yeah. So trust the person who is prescribing the medication because everybody's different. I, I, um, I've had some of those experiences with my patients where people will read something and they were like, and it doesn't work with them. And there's a, sometimes patients even force the physician to have some medications right. um, so that just because they want to try. And mm -hmm. like you mentioned earlier, I and my practice have been doing vestibular rehab for about 10 plus years now. And I have only seen probably a handful of cases, maybe three or four maximum. <laughs> and the last case that I remembered, um, the patient had gone on a ferry ride, came back and was a friend's friend. And I decided to give him some um, VOR training exercises mm -hmm. and balance exercises. And um, patient felt a little bit better, but then they finally dropped out. Mm -hmm. So um, 
I personally don't have much information to share. And with readings also, we don't see that much um, mm -hmm. out there in research on uh, multi-department. So for example, a patient does come to a physical therapist mm -hmm. and you suspect that the patient might have MDDS. And even if it was not correctly diagnosed, we land up having seen them. And, sure. and a lot of clinicians can, can experience that as a PT because we sometimes have GPs sending us um, mm -hmm. patients. What would you suggest to a PT or a clinician who is not well versed um, with um, management? Who is the first person this patient should see so that we can decrease that latency of, um, you know, getting an appropriate practitioner? So as information is spread, probably a neurologist, but you're going to find it hard to find people that can treat because um, I'll, I'll approach it from the easier, I'll approach it from the clinician side. So one, one drug that I didn't mention that I think is very helpful is clonazepam or, or diazepam. I, I personally like diazepam because it's weaker. You can get away with very little doses and it's effective. Um, and I prefer those than the shorter acting drugs because of dependency and uh, risk of rebound because they're going to have to take it every day. Um, and then the SNRI or SSRIs, as I have mentioned, uh, as far as vestibular therapy, um, it really is um, mostly they kind of act as a therapy of reassurance. Uh, I think that I don't find it very helpful, but I'm always willing to try so that they can become more motion tolerant and um, you know at least their balance gets better. But at, that the therapist must kind of temper the patient's expectation We'll give it a shot, um, but this condition is known to be less uh, responsive to traditional vestibular therapy. Now, that being said, I would love for more therapists to have this ability to use uh, VOR readaptation. I got a preface, this is class four evidence. We have no placebo. There was one placebo done by Mucci et al. in Belgium, but it wasn't a great placebo. Study was a little, it's, it was, it was better than no placebo, I'll put it that way, but it, it was showed efficacy. And um, we used to teach that it has to be in a full surround um, room because it's the peripheral um, visual stimuli that is actually more provoking and therapeutic. So what we have based on certain criteria of their exam, we, we rotate the optokinetic stimulus in one direction. And this is based on how they're feeling, which direction they're going, and if the Fukuda might help. And then we rotate their head like 20 degrees left and right at the frequency of their spinning, of their rotation. So 0.2 hertz. Sometimes I'll just go slower. If they have neck problems, I'll go 0.1 hertz. It seems to work as well. Not everybody, but it does help. Um, unfortunately, many of them are transient. And just because of practicality, I can't bring them in every week to try to do it. The protocol um, have them come in every day, but that's also for pragmatic reasons because if people fly in, you know, we want to give them five treatments. But if you look at the data, the improvement is within the first couple of days. Okay, so there's that that I would love um, therapists try. There's no harm in it, you know. Um, it's just you need to kind of uh, teach them how to select which direction, what do you do when, how they feel afterwards. And hopefully we'll have more data to, to be more systematic to kind of give this is what you do when they're feeling this way, this is what you do when they're feeling that way. The other one is RTMS. 
And that is a potential treatment. And I think that there are some case reports of people just trying it and patients um, deriving benefit. That's long-term. Um, but again, we need to kind of learn more to find a better way to have more consistent results. So uh, from uh, the initial aspect where you mentioned about vascular rehab, you mentioned about visual stimuli. Um, it has been noticed in people with MDDS that the vis they do have pro increased provocation with optokinetic um, stimuli. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, do you notice that? Could that be because patients have this, especially in spontaneous cases, because it's migraine uh, associated as well, because there's a predisposing migraine. And it's so commonly seen in vestibular migraines or mm -hmm. patients who are coming in who have an underlying migraine and have a vestibular deficit. They just right. seem to hit that wall right. when we're especially doing um, optokinetic um, training. With I think anybody with chronic vestibular disease they start using their eyes, they start using their proprioception more. It's more that I'm more describing um, kind of research uh, data supported uh, uh, hypothesis of what's happening in 3PD. So they do have like what they get very visually induced dizziness. And that's because they're using their eyes more. There's actually increased use of the occipital cortex and suppression of the vestibular cortex. And so I think similar things are happening in MDDS. You don't have to have migraines to have that visual sensitivity, but migraines definitely make everything worse. And so, but when you expose them to the VOR stimuli, there is one, it's direction based. So if you do one direction, they'll feel sick. If you move it in the other direction, they'll feel much better. You know, and they really tolerate the other direction when it works. Okay, so there's a lot of qualifiers here, but if it works, there's a direction preponderance, and and it's it's very interesting. But that's how our brains are organized with direction direction specific neurons. So it makes sense. Yeah. So what is your advice for patients when they come to you? What is the usual patient education that you provide that you would like to share with all of us? So with patients, I would say um, most people get better spontaneously. Um, you have to be holistic about everything. Try to get good sleep, hydration, try to reduce stress, which is easier said than done. And CBT would help because all of that um, helps with the brain's sensitivity to stimuli. Um, definitely, I always give a trial of VOR readaptation or DIES protocol just to see if it works. And then when it does work, they feel much better. And then medications, despite what they say in the literature, there is some benefit, like definitely dampening down the symptoms, which is probably all they need initially to feel, okay, I can function. This was so wonderful, Dr. Cho. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and sharing about this condition. One of the conditions that you don't really get to see so much, at least in vestibular clinics, or some clinics do get it more often than others. Um, but I'm sure everybody learned a lot today from you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this interview which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.